Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists, to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Giving Tuesday is near, but so is Black Friday, the shopping holiday to end all shopping holidays. So CHF has paired the two in order to give back to you, our audience of visual artists. From the crack of dawn, Black Friday, November 23rd, through the witching hour on Giving Tuesday, November 27th, that's five full days, any artist can score a 25% discount on any CHF offering. That includes the upcoming Art Business Conference in February in Fort Lauderdale, the Art Business Conference in March in Washington, D.C.'s metro area, and or premium access to CHF's powerful digital learning portal. Check the CHF website on November 23rd for your coupon code. This is our way of giving back, and if you're not an artist, help us continue giving to artists by going to clarkhewlingsfund.org slash give. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now, our guest today is Kristen LeVere. Kristen is a sculptor and a 2018 Executive Fellow with CHF's Art Business Accelerator program. After 20 years as a molecular biologist, she transitioned to full-time studio art 13 years ago. Working with wood and exploring a lifelong curiosity about the complexity of nature, Kristen's work raises doubts about a hard boundary between science and fine art. Based in Moscow, Idaho, she's just returned from Chicago's Sculpture Objects Functional Art and Design, or SOFA, Expo. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Thanks, Daniel. So, Kristen, I'm really interested in what brand story you tell about your work, because it certainly sounds intriguing. So so what's your brand story? Well, my brand story is really that I'm trying with every single object that I make to create work that's really at the interface of art and science. Um, I think I'm really opposed to this idea that people can only be right brain dominant or left brain dominant and science and art are two separate worlds because to me I feel like there's so many commonalities and there is just such a strong intersection and that is what I'm trying to communicate. Now what story did you tell before becoming a CHF fellow or has it evolved at all since that time? (laughs) Oh boy when someone asked me what kind of work I made I I would hem and haw and I would say, I'm terrible at this part. I'm terrible at talking about it. Maybe I'd pull out a picture. I'd sort of do some little charade dance because I, I, um, I have a lot of motion uh, movement in my work. So I'm kind of waggling my hands around. Uh, it, it was a very inarticulate story that I don't even think could be <laughs> described as a story back then. Well, I want to dig into this because, you know, we use this high-level language like the intersection or exploring the boundaries of, and sometimes it still doesn't really give people a sense of, you know, what it is they expect to see. Um, And so I'm going to plug into some quotes that uh, you've used in reference to your art and uh, and ask you what they mean. So um, the first one is this, quote, The two decades I spent as a research molecular biologist allowed me to explore the depth and complexity of our world. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like? What was it like doing that job? Well, um, it was something that I think I'm perfectly suited to in that every day is different. Um, You're doing a different, you're answering a different question or trying to figure out a different piece of the puzzle each day. Um, And it's very curiosity driven and very problem solving driven. You know, what, how does this work? Why does this work? How do we kill this? disease-causing bacterium, uh, and then you just spend sometimes years, if not decades, doing experiments and um, 
digging in to answer those questions. Well, so it it does uh, sound like with the curiosity that it automatically has some overlaps with art, although I don't necessarily think most artists sit around going, how can we kill, you know, fill in the blank, kill this thing, you know, we must kill it (laughs) before it gets to the children. But I I think that's a a fun part of it. You know, we might not expect someone to go from lab to studio. Um, Why is that, do you think? Is it really that uncommon? And, And how did you make the journey? You know, I think it is fairly uncommon, but I know a handful of artists who are coming out of tech backgrounds or um, lab research like um, I was involved in or feels like mathematics. Um, There's definitely people doing it. There just aren't maybe enough of us that people think of it as a common thing. Um, I'm kind of trying to um, break that stereotype, hopefully, in things that I do. For me, I guess it it happened because as a child, I always wanted to be an artist and I wanted to be a scientist. And so at every sort of branch point in life, I was kind of always trying to decide between the two. And uh, so the first one would have been, I guess the first big one would have been going to college. What am I going to study? Where am I going to go to school? And um, I think, you know, I had those two loves, but I was, I think I let practicality win out and I figured that I'd be able to do art as a hobby while working as a scientist and that I probably wasn't going to be able to figure out how to do it in the reverse. And then I made the same decision again. When I finished college, I went to graduate school and got a PhD in molecular biology. And it was only when I was in my late thirties that there was a time that seemed right for my family and just for the desire that I, I had always had in me. It just felt like, okay, this is right. This is the time I'm going to um, switch away from science and try to really give art a, a real go. And I had been doing art and um, making furniture the whole time I was working as a scientist, just at night. It, it really gave me a lot of balance in my life, but it had been calling all along and uh, just seemed like I was ready to do it when we made a move to uh, a different state, when we moved to Idaho. Well, that's the secret life of the scientist, right? You uh, uh, lab technician by day, go home and you're working on, uh, you know, a plan to uh, invade Paris or to create the next Rembrandt or or some other unexpected thing. You know, the the ideal per, two minute omelet uh, at home. Well, you you have this quote. Um, that I want to ask you about because it digs in a little bit more to the meat of what you're doing. And it says, quote, I saw in nature a remarkable, well-ordered system full of solutions essential to our existence. And I continue to view the world through the lens of a scientist. So what do you mean by this phrase, solutions to our existence? So in science, I suppose the solutions are how does the world work and how does something evolve or how does something get food or protect itself? And a number of those things have really been recurring themes in my work. I'm really interested in motion and in interactions between organisms, you know, humans uh, interacting with each other or animals protecting each other. But I feel like solution is a little bit um, too strong of a word for what I'm trying to do. I kind of feel that inadvertently what I'm trying to do with my art is take these simple sort of quiet overlooked things in the world, something like a blade of grass, a seed, something microscopic or something tiny living in the ocean and just just sort of illuminate the fact that they are just as 
complex and have the same solutions as something that we think of as more complicated, a mammal or, you know, some really flamboyant plant or something like this. I feel like I'm just trying to, and I, I don't know why, but it's what drives me is to kind of point out that there's this incredible complex beauty and, and, um, as you said, ordered system that keeps even the tiniest things on our planet working as they do. So I get it now. You know, we're not talking about uh, big cosmic solutions like solutions to the problem of world hunger or a solution to the Earth's rising energy needs or something like that. When you, you talk about solutions to our existence, you're talking about the way an ant has figured out uh, to store energy for, you know, a season or the way a plant has figured out to obtain enough oxygen or, or access exactly. enough sunlight despite you know it, it, its intruding environment or something like that so you're seeing all of these solutions and you're you're amplifying those through art and showing us a thing that I don't know maybe allows us to illuminate a deeper uh, level of consideration have a deeper level of consideration and illuminate things about ourselves yeah hopefully I mean I, w- I would love it if my work were solving world hunger but I think exactly what you're saying can maybe help us think of our position in the universe. You know, we get all upset about, you know, my flight's delayed or you're angry about some stupid little thing that happens in traffic. And the fact, you know how anything works, the fact that uh, any of us are alive today at all, it's unbelievable. And I just, I think anything that sometimes helps us to refocus and feel grateful and amazed by these just incredible things surrounding us on the planet I hope that's a great thing. It's certainly a reminder that I like to have in my life. Now, um, I'm going to read, I got a couple more of these, uh, and I can't resist because they're so good. And, and so <laughs> this one says, I began working as a studio artist 13 years ago, and I'm driven to make art that connects us to the extraordinary, strange beauty of the natural world. And then paired with that, um, you say this, the structure of a leaf or the movement of a bacterium can be astonishingly lovely. And I sculpt with the aim of shining a light on the unsung allure of the subtle and the tiny. And of course, I've seen your work, and I like to think of your work as essentially channeling what's under the microscope um, so that, you know, those of us who aren't going to look at a microscope slide um, have a means of of interacting with um, the larger and deeper layers of the world through art. That certainly works for me as a narrative. And uh, but many of us who've put a bug or a bacterium under a microscope in a slide recoil at the ugliness of the thing, the freakishness, uh, and are perhaps even terrorized at the thought of the thing, you know, being human-sized. Our imagination goes, oh, no, I don't want you to enlarge that. So my question is, why do you see beauty there? Can you convince us that, that that's authentic, that you really do see beauty in those things? Yeah, I do have to remind myself that I have a different worldview than a lot of people. See, I feel the opposite. I I don't understand how other people can't see that beauty. I guess for me, maybe you take it out of the context and you just look at um, the bug as a visual. There's usually incredibly beautiful textures, you know, undulating antenna or transparent wings. To me, there's, there's just a lot of beauty. And maybe if you remove it from something that creeps you out, that would help people to see it. Um, it's funny you would ask this because I was just exhibiting some sculptures at Sofa Chicago where I've wrapped some snakes around some spoons. And um, so I make sculptural spoons as symbols of 
family and sustenance and self kind of selflessness. But I wrap the snakes around them, not as Western symbols where a snake is a temptation or a dangerous, creepy thing. But in many cultures, snakes are symbols of protection. So I have a symbol of, of protection wrapped around a symbol that to me means family. So I don't know if that convinces anybody and perhaps it should convince me to move on to less creepy subject matter to other people. But I don't know. I can't get over the fact that the beauty doesn't outweigh the creepiness. Well, I get it. And, you know, I have a vivid imagination. I grew up with all of those giant bug movies where, you know, bugs invading, you know, Manhattan, et cetera. And I just think, uh, so, so Kristen's going to give me the, the staphylococcus that ate New York, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and in a way I think it's kind of cool, but I'm actually, uh, kind of enjoying looking around, uh, you know, with your work to see if other people squirm. See, and then you talk about bacteria and then I think of how each of us has billions of bacteria as a part of our gut. And those are the things that are keeping us alive and that helps our immune systems develop. And we'd be in huge trouble without them. We've evolved together. And so, I don't know, maybe, maybe I should be fine with everyone finding um, my subject matter creepy as long as I really can talk about it eloquently and kind of educate people of the great things that these you know, quote unquote, cre creepy things are doing for us as well. Oh, sounds like a good goal. I think I think creepy and weird is a great angle. I, I think you could appeal to classrooms full of eight year olds, just go in and say, <laughs> did you know that we all have mites living in our eyeballs? <laughs> Which is true, by the way. So oh, I know, um, yeah. <laughs> for the audience that doesn't know that, yes, you have mites living in your eyes. And, uh, um, and they're quite scary. And and I'm not would not be surprised if Kristen one day uh, blows one of those up to life size and gives us that sense of movement you do with your sculpture. But I'm going to do one more quote as we we kind of in this segment on uh, brand story uh, and how we represent our brand as artists. I'm going to do one more of these, ask you a couple of questions about brand story, and then we'll move on to um, selling your brand, which is um, uh, the next segment. So here's my final quote from you: Through my work. Uh, I hope to, it's actually a pair of quotes. Through my work, I hope to deliver scientific content viscerally and use the human capacity for curiosity to prompt us to look more closely at the tiniest details of the fantastically rich and beautiful world around us. And then there's another quote, I make work at the intersection of art and science that illuminates the elaborate, breathtaking spectacle of our world. So uh, I am curious about um, curiosity. Uh, it seems to me that you're describing curiosity as the entry point. And I couldn't help but think of either Trevelyan or Lord Acton, who said, disinterested intellectual curiosity is the lifeblood of civilization. So my question is, do you think curiosity is more than uh, a personal fancy or whim? That curiosity in some way has the power to change us or to change society? What are we missing in our sort of light version or view of curiosity, if anything? When you first brought up curiosity, uh, my first thought is children. And it, if we weren't sort of hardwired to be curious when we were babies, we wouldn't really, I mean, I think we'd be in a lot of trouble. I mean, curiosity is what allows all, pretty much all of us probably to learn that dirt doesn't taste good and that certain things are hot and that um, that dog does not want me to pet it. And um, so I think of curiosity absolutely as something that we can all learn from. And um, I feel like the converse of someone just sitting in their chair 
I don't know, watching or reading things that totally confirm what they already believe. Um, I think that gets us into an awful lot of trouble. So I love anything that spurs on curiosity and museums and films and podcasts and, you know, anything that just teaches us something new and then, or, or maybe makes us realize something we don't know. And then we look it up, explore it a little further. I mean, to me, that's, that's great. That That's a huge, huge driver for progress, personal and um, just in the world in general. Well, it sounds like one of those um, strategies for uh, continued existence uh, or survival that we were sort of talking about at, at the top of the show, um, the solutions to our existence, that curiosity um, for us, for humans, I mean, they always say curiosity killed the cat, but, um, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, it can be too much. If you stick a, a, a needle into a, an elec electrical outlet, maybe your curiosity could be channeled in better directions. But uh, But the curiosity also helps us advance um, the species and advance our capabilities, you know, it solves medical problems and things like that, it solves energy problems, uh, protects us against diseases. Curiosity drives a lot of innovation. So, um, so I like that portion of it. Well, um, so it sounds like, uh, to kind of sum this, uh, section of the show up that you're committed to the notion that you're not just marketing your work, um, or whatever you happen to make, but you're marketing a brand. I mean, I see a, a lot of artists just sort of heads down producing work. You know, I made these things and then try, going out and I'll try to find buyers now, uh, but seemingly completely unconcerned with branding at all, you know. Uh, so why, why is it important um, for you to have come up with a brand story and to focus on branding? I think one of the big um, benefits of it for me is that it just allows me to talk about my work in, in a way, still a little bit halting and uh, wandering, but, um, you know, if you're going to be able to talk about the brand of your work, it means you, you pretty much need to understand it. And so for me, you know, at the beginning, I was doing exactly what you said. I was just making whatever was sort of a whim for me. And then I started noticing trends. And then it got to the point where I really had a story that I wanted to tell. And I had things that I want to show the world. And I guess using the word branding just means that story becoming more articulate and more concise. So I, you can actually talk about it with anybody, someone you're sitting next to on the bus, your grandma. Um, yeah, I, I still find it a challenge. I think a lot of artists do to, <laughs> ooh, to really talk about our work well. But um, yeah, I think brand is a good way to talk about that or to frame being able to talk about it well not everyone is um not everyone is good at talking about it but it doesn't mean they don't have a brand i would say that um we don't conflate branding with the ability to talk about our branding um that, mm -hmm. that branding is simply the opposite of heads down making a bunch of work and just churning it out and hoping you know well if they like my work they'll buy it I hear that a lot. And I think, um, and your question was, what, wait, what was it? Why am I not financially successful as an artist? <laughs> Let's go back to the first thing you said. I just make work and put it out there and hope people buy it, you know? So the thing about branding is, uh, lots of people can channel your brand, but once in order to do that, they have to know what it is. So somehow you have to communicate it. Yeah. But do you see that, um, do you think that you're not alone 
uh, in that regard. I mean, I see that, and maybe I'm biased, but I see that as a thing holding a lot of artists back from financial prosperity. Um, the almost the fetishized belief that branding is is polluting the work, or that artists shouldn't have branding, or we don't need branding, or somehow that's artificial. Do you see that barrier out there, or am I imagining it? Oh, I definitely see it. I think it's uh, maybe a combination of, yeah, that feeling like it's kind of dirty and it's, you know, it's for business people, not for creatives. Um, uh, definitely that. But then I think also for visual artists, um, we probably think best in pictures as opposed to words. And that that for me is kind of what makes me stumble when I'm trying to talk about my work. I think we mostly know that we should get better at it. I, that's common when I talk to artists, they say the same thing. Ah, I just, I don't know how to describe what I do. I think you are right on, right on with that idea. Well, um, moving into talking a little bit about selling your brand and using the specific example of how you market your brand, or your brand story, as you've explained it in an interview last year, uh, you mentioned that it was a challenge to find the right audience for your work. And I also hear a lot of artists say that how, how's that going at this point? Well, for me, it's definitely, um, in process right now, but one of the early, early steps that kind of made me see where I should be going with finding my audience is somebody asked me, well, who, who are the people that buy your work? And, um, the majority of people who buy my work are tend to be scientists, medical doctors, or chiropractors. Certainly also just sort of art-focused people. But I don't know. For some reason, I just thought, oh, well, you know, okay, they buy that. But just thinking, oh, maybe they have the money to, to buy art. But then, you know, really slowing down and thinking, no, that is my audience. And I'm working now towards finding a way to be able to meet that audience more. I'm trying to put together a talk about the intersection of art and science because there's so many artists doing what I'm trying to do. And I think if I can give that sort of talk or, or be on a panel dealing with a topic like that in front of medical doctors or scientists, I think that would make an awful lot of sense for directly addressing my audience and in, enlarging it. Right now, it's sort of been hit or miss. If a doctor comes to an exhibit of my work, they find it, but I'm really just rolling the dice. So I'm trying to move towards um, what I know of as my audience already. Yeah, that that's what I hear a lot with artists, rolling the dice. And I think there's got to be a better way than, you know, put it out there and hope, roll the dice. It's got to be, um, it's got to be a concerted sales effort that once you, you know your audience, know who they are, that you find a way to, to reach them more effectively. But, you know, in the meantime, yeah, rolling the dice doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't work. But in the meantime, I mean, it, it works with a little trickle and eventually you get there. If somebody will say, well, if it works good enough, you'll, you'll be famous. And I'm like, yeah, if you've got a hundred years, um, you'll be famous after you're dead, maybe, but you know, <laughs> but at that pace, you won't enjoy your life necessarily. Yeah. So, um, yeah. if you want the life you want, maybe you got to amplify it. You got to amp it up a bit, but uh, with that, obviously, comes risks and comes rejection. So how are you handling risks and rejection as they arise? You know, I have gotten a lot more brave um, during my time uh, as a CHF fellow. I, I feel like now I, if I think there's a gallery or um, an exhibition 
that is suited to me, I'm not afraid to call somebody and, and ask them if, if they think I would be a fit. I'm not afraid to reach out to other artists who I'd like to exhibit with. I, I don't know how to explain it. I think we had to do so much scary work as fellows, really you know, examining why are we doing this work? Why, um, what am I trying to say? I think just doing all this heavy thinking, heavy writing and heavy work, um, things that would have really scared me before just don't scare me at all anymore. And I think part of that has to do with rejection, the part of your, the second part of your question. I think um, visual artists, uh, we ask each other for critiques on our work and the most valuable one is one that's honest. So I have a little bit of experience having my work be critiqued and maybe that and just age and all this. I'm really not afraid of rejection at all. In fact, I, a couple of years ago, I decided to only apply to residencies and exhibitions that I thought I would probably most certainly get uh, rejected from because I was noticing I keep getting into these exhibitions, maybe things focused on wood. Uh, and I just thought, you know, if I'm ever going to move on, I need to apply to things where people haven't heard of me. I have no reputation and uh, I'm probably going to get rejected. And I do get rejected an awful lot of times, um, but I also um, get accepted for things as well. But rejection just barely saves me anymore, I have to say. You, you can get good at them. If you get rejected enough, it doesn't even bother you, I think. Well, is there a, is there a, a method for handling the no and gearing up for the next yes? Well, I think for me, um, I'm a little bit stubborn. So um, if I get rejected from something that happens every year or every three years, I'll just think, well, okay, I'm going to make something so great that next time I apply, they will have to say yes. So I think that sort of stubbornness helps. Um, I, I mean, partially for me, I'm just so busy. Um, I just have so much going on. I don't really have time to dwell on a rejection. And I just understand that as part of what we do. Writers, musicians, artists, you just put it out there again and again and again. And it's what you're doing resonates with some people and not with others. And I, I don't think there's any reason to get upset about that. I mean, I don't like, my aesthetic isn't, lacy curtain kitchens and you know photographs of kitty cats but if somebody who loves that stuff doesn't like my work i i don't feel bad about it at all i think it's just a difference in aesthetics so i just don't take it personally oh but i i really do think you should be doing the lacy kitchen curtains because they're <laughs> so full of bacteria and mites <laughs> That I mean, they're practically Kristen a petri dish of interesting critters <laughs> that you can dig out of that stuff. So some of which true. have lived there for years. You know? <laughs> oh, I see a new series and of work. You're talking about cats, you know, and all the hairballs and the the fur that builds up in the litter boxes. I mean, I'm just seeing a, a microbiologist dream come true to to work with those. You know, give us the picture of the cute cat and then zoom in and show us what's living there. <laughs> what are what are the genius, cat's friends genius. called? <laughs> Well, that, that'll change Facebook if the cat photos start being like that. Um, here's your cat at, you know, 10,000 magnification. Um, so uh, what have you learned about, you know, because your tribe 
uh, finding your tribe, whether it's the science uh, enthusiast community uh, within the art market or it's the medical community, um, that that's something you mentioned is important. What have you learned about reaching and communicating uh, with that tribe? And do you think of it as a niche or something broader uh, having to do with sort of finding allies and partners for your business and sales strategy? Well, I think I'm a part of multiple communities. So some of them are kind of niche and others are are uh, really broad. Uh, I, I definitely find that um, having other artists that I talk with often seems really important to me. I think, you know, what we're doing is difficult. I mean, everybody has difficulties, but um, it's really nice to know that you have someone who's kind of going through the things you're going through um, so we can support each other and help each other problem solve. Um, that's been really helpful to me. And I think you were asking about how how I do it. I do. I have a local artist group in my town. So we meet face-to-face a couple times a month. But I have artist friends across the world. And some of them, you know, we met on social media. And that's all we've ever known of each other. But we can still be supportive and um, helpful or enthusiastic. Uh, about each other's work so I don't know I think there's there's a huge range of how um, something support networks can work for people and I've found that a lot of different ways work so it's nice to have somebody who kind of trying to do the same thing as you well let's talk a little bit deeper about um, sort of the concept of tribe and and our network um, or, or maybe more correctly who who we fit in with so because um, part of this is I have a brand um, I have to sell the brand. I have to roll with the rejections as well as the acceptances of the brand. I have to target my audience, know who my audience target is, uh, my ideal audience, and then not take the rejection seriously, but also zoom out and be strategic and try to advance that. Don't just be heads down and roll the dice. But then it comes upon us all that um, the type of art that we're making, uh, not just the theme, but the literally the physical process uh, can change who our tribe is. So like science, your art is really a hands-on process. I mean, there's soldering, welding, grinding. One of my favorite photos of you has one of those helmet safety shields, kind of like you can buy at Home Depot. Yeah. And it's sitting on the table next to you as though your studio splinters are just flying and white hot ends of metal could be breaking off and so on. And uh, that brings up, you know, the age-old thing of craft versus art. And I have my own sort of take on that, but I wonder, do you think of yourself as a, a craftsperson as much as an artist? I do, but I don't, um, as you alluded to, it's kind of a big kind of fight or big discussion, the difference between art and craft. And I have to say, I, what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to make, it doesn't have anything to do with a label. So I don't really care if someone calls me a craft person or a woodworker versus calling me an artist. It, you know, so the definition that you hear in the art world is that art is something made with a concept with or without um, craftsmanship. And craft is something made with good craftsmanship with or without a concept. And so for me, I work at an extremely high level, perhaps uh, anal retentive level of craftsmanship. I'm very perfectionistic about what I do. But there's always a concept behind what I'm doing. So I feel like I fall in the middle of those two descriptions. And I, I really don't care what people call me. But, you, you know, that is if you use the wrong word for some people, they're going to get really upset with you. 
So I guess I would consider both of those my tribes. Yeah. Um, so I have a colleague, and, and this is my favorite explanation, uh, because um, I don't enjoy arguing semantics for the sake of semantics. You know, is it craft? Is it art? And somebody always, there's always the wise bro that says it's both. And it's like, thanks, dude, you solved it. Peace will reign. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> we can all now rely, you know. But I have a colleague um, who is a Baroque uh musician and composer who says that uh, the Baroque artists uh, viewed themselves not as artists, who they they considered art, an artist to be someone concerned with channeling a, a merely personal idiosyncrasy, but um, they considered themselves craftspeople. So Bach, uh, when he, he generates those great organ concertos, it, it, you know, it's he's thinking of himself as a craftsperson, by which um, they understood that to mean that they were deliberately evoking something in the world, something external to themselves, a universal, either an emotion um, that is objective, and this is objectively the emotion of awe, or this is objectively the, the emotion of sadness, or a tradition, but something about the nature of the world and what's in the world. And for them, that was the distinction between art and craft. The artist evokes a personal idiosyncrasy. The craftsperson evokes an objective thing that's in the world, um, very much like what you're doing with science. And so that kind of prompted me to, to ask you that question. Uh, but if we zoom out to the, the more sort of pop definitions of art and craft, it does devolve into semantics pretty quickly. Uh, and yet, uh, I do want to ask you this. Are the markets for fine art and craft um, different? Uh, do, you find, do you sell differently depending on classification or find yourself um, plugging into sort of craft fairs, for instance, differently than art fairs or changing how... I'm reminded of the guy in Josie Wales that on one side of the river during the Civil War, he's whistling Dixie. And on the other side of the river, he's singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, depending on which customers he's trying to reach. And I'm wondering <laughs> if you sing the song of art on one side of the river and the song of craft on the other to try to reach, you know, <laughs> effectively your audience. <laughs> you know, I think I do, but I, I don't do it strategically. I just think that I have things in common with both both sides of the river. I guess. So there, there is a, a big difference as far as what people are willing to pay. I think um, craft is considered uh, less highbrow than fine art in, in most settings, I think. Um, so that, that's, that's something I suppose you should think of for sales and choosing pricing for your work. But, you know, I love to talk to craft people because they understand how I made something or they have questions about how on earth did you make that? But then I love that when fine art people are moved by the lines that I make or more of the concept behind it. So uh, I, I like both. They are quite different, in my opinion. Well, I, I think that thing about craft, I mean, we have sort of this new race of people called creative professionals that, I mean, they've been around forever, right? You know, but, um, yeah. but, you know, since the dawn of time, since they were painting wall paintings in Borneo, but um, or cave paintings in Borneo, but we have this term, you know, the creative professional, and um, they're often interested in the same uh, need to grow their business, define a brand, et cetera, the stuff that we we constantly are teaching at the Clark Healings Fund, and and so, um, but right away when somebody says I'm a creative professional, not a fine artist, um, they usually mean I, I make jewelry or I make some other you know thing, I make leather goods or whatever, but um, and right away. Um, 
you know, we hear, ah, the price point's going to be lower. But I think of the guy that made my shoes in Italy. And I think, wow, that wasn't lower. They might as well be art. You know, I hope you signed my shoes because that's what you charged me for them. (laughs) Or the handmade, you know, chess sets you often see in such places. So I think it depends a little bit about, uh, on, Mm -hmm. you know, what you're, you're doing. But I, I just picture you talking to other, you know, to crass people and saying, I'm a fine artist, darn it. Now get out of the way of my angle grinder. (laughs) I could just see that as your your photo caption. (laughs) You know, when you spend 90% of your workday in overalls covered in sawdust, it's pretty hard to act fancy. And I don't really have the goal of being like that. Hey, I lived in in the South. That's just how a Southern girl goes to breakfast. You know, that's how how it is. (laughs) I like that. Well, um, so you're doing uh, some public speaking gigs, too, and teaching on a regular basis. And I just want to ask you how that came about. How does that influence who you're reaching? And is that increasing your tribe? Well, teaching first started for me, um, you know, it just came out of being brave. And it was very early on my pathway of being brave. I was just sort of the lone person doing wood carving at a, at the MIT hobby shops. And there were lots of um, students and professors in there making things out of metal and wood. And people were um, interested in what I was doing. I was using a power carver and I, people just kept asking about it. And so I said to the guys who ran the um, shop, you know, I'd be willing to teach this if you want. So my very first um, teaching as a non-scientist just came from that. I just sort of volunteered to teach people. And then once you've done it once, you think, well, I'll just do it again. And um, that's how that started. And I was eventually contacted by one of the big craft schools in America, Aramont School of Arts and Crafts, and was invited to teach a week-long workshop, which was terrifying. I don't know how to teach for a week. I wasn't trained as a teacher, but... I uh, used my friends as guinea pigs and I attended my own week-long workshop and, you know, applied my diligent worker skills to learn how to do it. And uh, that went well. And then when you have one or more of those under your belt that goes well, then other schools reach out to you. So that's how that started. And um, I only try to teach four times a year because I do have kids who live at home that I like to be with. And um, it's also distracting just from making art in general. But I absolutely love those times. Um, I'm teaching people who have put their money and their time on the line to learn things. So they're just the best students you could get. And we just make a mess. And I, I really have a wonderful time. I try to teach everything I've ever learned during these workshops. If you ever come to my one of my workshops, you are absolutely going to get your money's worth because I, I was taught things by other kind people. And I just want to teach everything, everything I was ever taught. I just want to share that with people. Well, yeah, I think that's um, very common now in uh, what people call maker spaces and in the sort of creative professional and, and crafts community too, that, um, that part of the, I mean, not that fine artists haven't been teaching um, skills and things like that, but it's almost endemic to the craft community. You know, yeah. people are exchanging techniques, whether it be for uh, fermenting a better craft beer or (laughs) for uh, using the angle grinder, to use that example again, in a different way, or a power carver, as you Mm -hmm. said. 
but I wonder, you know, as um, t- talking more about um, building a community of other artists, as a fellow in the Clark Healings Fund Accelerator Program, you've been part of a community of other working artists within that program, uh, namely a team. And I wonder, what are the practical and sort of personal emotional benefits of, of being in that kind of community? And have you learned anything about how artists can help each other? You know, it's funny hearing you say the word team, because after spending nearly two years together, I think we kind of feel like a family. Um, it, it's been amazing for me to to ha- be in this group with other artists and um other people at CHF, I just think people are very vulnerable and very honest with each other, which to me is the best way that interactions like that can work. So sometimes when we're on a, you know, we mostly interact via phone calls or on computer. Sometimes we're just propping each other up. Someone's had a health issue or some, you know, they got too many rejections in a row and we're just supporting each other. But other times it's very concrete advice. You know, I saw this call for artists here. I think it would really, um, your work would be great in this situation or, you know, here's how I write a press release. It's, I mean, it's been all across the board and we've, some of us have stayed with each other and visited each other across the country. Um, I, I don't know. It's been great in so many different ways. Very, very, it's very powerful to have other allies who are trying to do what you're trying to do as well. Now, uh, you went from having a team in uh, the Accelerator Program to founding a chapter of the Artist Federation, which for those who don't know, um, the Artist Federation is a young uh, professional network for um, for artists, working artists, that consists of local chapters with kind of a national infrastructure uh, behind it. So what What's it like, Kristen, founding and developing a chapter of the Artist Federation and sort of working on growing membership? Well, you know, I talked about becoming more brave. This is something I don't think I ever would have considered doing a couple of years ago. Um, I just don't like to be in charge of things. But I I realized that there was a real hole missing where I lived. There, There really weren't people talking about the business side of being an artist. We have a few um, artist groups that have lots of exhibitions and it's really great for what they do, but there was nobody um, thinking about the business side. So I was just brave. Okay, I'm going to do it. Um, It's been a lot of fun. I've met new people and much like I was talking about before, we've, you know, propped each other up and then uh, had lots of suggestions about um, things uh, that we thought, you know, I saw this thing that I think your work would be great for. And we've also done some tool exchanges. Oh, I have a, I have an extra lathe. You can borrow mine for a few months. And it just feels like a, a very small, young community, but that we're, we're growing roots. And it feels like we're just trying to teach each other what's worked for us and what hasn't. And it, again, it feels like something that uh, brings me strength and I think gives other people in the group strength as well. What's the advantage of um, new blood or, or trying to actually grow the membership and, and increase the number of relationships, do you think? Well, I think just so we can help more people. I think there are a fair number of artists where I live, and 
just, you know, we live in a rural setting and most people work alone in their own spaces. So there aren't, you know, it's not like there's some big warehouse with 40 artist studios like you see in cities. And, you know, I like the small group that we have, but I think if there are more people that want to explore the business side of art with us, I think it, it will be great and just strengthen all of us because everybody has their own experiences and their own strengths. So, you know, you, you're you based in uh, a fairly small community. Yep. And, um, yeah. And I wonder, what are the benefits or the drawbacks of living <laughs> in a small community for your art career? Oh, I've thought a lot about this. Um, I mean, overall, I'm extremely grateful to be where I am. Um, uh, when you live in a small community like this, uh, there's, nature close at hand, which is one of my biggest inspirations. So that's great. I don't have to go far at all. I can, out my window, I can see mountains and I can see lawn views, a beautiful field. So that's great. Um, it's also fairly inexpensive to live here. So studio space is something that's pretty attainable for a lot of people. Uh, also, I can afford to be an artist. If you're living uh, where where you live, Daniel, in a big city, um, I might still have to be pulling in a bigger income, and I still be working in a lab. Um, great people are nice here. There's, you know, there's a lot of the stereotypical small town things that work really well for me as an artist, just as it would for anybody as a human being. Drawbacks, I think, are <laughs> I spend an awful lot of time at FedEx. That's the um, carrier I use to mail my artwork they really do you know know me by name I spend I spend a lot of money mailing my artwork to exhibitions and a lot of exhibitions are too far for me to go to so I last year last couple of years I've exhibited in New York LA Miami Pittsburgh Asheville North Carolina just a bunch of great places and I didn't go to any of those exhibits I just it would cost too much to be able to travel like that. So that's definitely a disadvantage. Although, because it is inexpensive to live here, I do have more money left over. So I, I do try to travel a couple of times a year to a city and take in as much art as I can. You mentioned I was just in Chicago for SOFA and I went to the Natural History Museum, the Field Museum. I went to as many galleries as I could. And then the um, SOFA itself usually has about booths for about 80 galleries around the world. So I, I live here in peace and quiet where I can get a lot of work done. And then I go out and I just sponge in all the culture I can when I do leave the area. I guess that's the best of uh, both worlds. Well, just to put a, a button in this uh, sort of topic, I, what advice um, would you give other artists who want to coordinate a professional networking group, something like a chapter of the Artist Federation? Um, based on your experience thus far, um, if you could give them a tip, what would it be? I guess advertise in multiple ways. Um, I found that some people only look at emails. Other people I have to talk to in person, and others have really responded to uh, Instagram and meetup pages. Just get the word out as many ways as you can because there's probably someone out there who wants to do exactly what you're thinking of getting started. Well, that's pretty good advice. Um, I would concur with that for sure. Um, most chapters start 
you know, uh, by a small group of people who know each other and just think, you know, we let's figure out, we all want to advance our careers. Let's figure out how we can do that um, together, how we can do it collaboratively. Yeah. So uh, I want to ask you a, a few questions about um, technology, logistics, and finance, and then we'll kind of wind up uh, with a question about Accelerator. So um, you built your own website. And my obvious question is, why on earth would you do that yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I've actually built three of my own websites. And when I built the first one, I had no idea how you did it. I don't know how to code. The reason I chose to do it myself is because if I had a web builder, every time I wanted to, or I don't know if that's the name of the person, whoever it is who build, would build a website for me, every time I want to update my website, I have to send images to that person and I'm kind of beholden to them. You know, if they're busy, maybe they're not going to update my website for a week. And maybe in my head, I would think, every time I need to update this, it costs me $50. I just, I wanted the freedom to be able to make my website exactly how I wanted it and to have complete control over it. So it, it works for me. It's a pain. It, it kills a good two weeks for me every time I make a new website. But um, I, I'm glad after those two weeks are done, I'm happy that I've done it. Well, it's it's certainly something that anyone can learn to do. And I say that as a person yeah. who has run a web design shop for quite some years, um, that uh, um, the tools have reached a level of sophistication now where it's actually much simpler um, for the average person to build a, a fairly satisfying website. But that oh, said, yeah. you know, without even coding. But that, I, I even wrote an article about this, you know, uh, for Forbes called A Pinch of David Bowie, Why We Designed Our Own Branding. And it, it was less about the website um, thing, but it was more about the overall sort of big picture of designing your own brand. Because obviously when you go to build a website, you're, you're sort of brand sensibility, your colors, your fonts, your style – um, you kind of need to know that first. Otherwise, you're looking at a white page and going, all right, now what? And uh, we did that for a company that, that I own, and, um, and I sort of explained the reasons for it. But, but we just felt that a designer wouldn't get it uh, in a way that we could explain it, that once, well, until we could get clear enough that we could do it, um, we were never going to get there. And then once we did, we can always get a designer to make it better. But um, we needed to find our inner David Bowie. We knew we liked <laughs> what David Bowie was doing, but we didn't know how to translate that in the type of company that we were um, we representing. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I yeah. would add to that that, um, I don't know, one of the times that I made one of my websites, I spent, I probably spent six hours at least just looking at hundreds and hundreds of websites. Um, looking at artists, gallery, and and um, writer websites, and if you do that, even for a couple hours, you begin to understand really quickly what draws you in, what completely repels you. I hate music on a website. I cannot stand that. Um, so just investing that time really helped me to access my inner David Bowie, I guess. Yeah, I think I think we all have to do that. We were talking at the top of the the show about branding. Uh, it's partly, uh, you know, if you ask, um, oh, I have a cousin who does branding. You know, well, it depends what you mean. Do you mean the brand narrative, or do you mean uh, the the visual look and feel of the brand? And what you dread hearing is both. It's like, all right, well, then it's going to be mediocre. So, so basically, they're they're two different things, but you got to consider both of them. Now. Yeah. You keep a really 
strict schedule for your creative work also, um, which means you say no a lot, uh, resisting the resistance that keeps us from working. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I'm curious, uh, this is a logistics question. Um, how do you handle time management for, uh, to allow for studio work, running your business, um, and your family and uh, things like building your own website? Yeah. You know, it's something that took me many years to figure out because I always had a boss in the past and, you know, if you don't get your work done, you're fired. So I had to learn how to manage myself. But yeah, like you said, I'm very strict about it. Um, when my kids are at school, I'm in the studio as much as I possibly can be. So between 8 a.m. and 3 p.m., I I say no a lot. I, I don't get dentist appointments then. I say no to lunch requests from friends. And I just, I hold that time very sacred. And there, I have to say there are some days when I don't feel like making something. It's pretty rare. Um and then there's always sawdust to clean up and things to organize. So I never give myself that excuse. If I'm not sick, it doesn't matter if I don't feel like being in there. I'm in the shop working. Um, because I like to be around my family and my kids tend to have a lot of homework, I do my computer work, you know, updating my website and my archives so I know where all my art is and where it's sold. And ordering, things like that. I try to do it at home. Um, you know, I'll just sit next to them on the couch and do my work. Uh, and then when things get really busy, then I just have to stay up late at night. But I try to do that sort of business computer stuff uh, at night so that I can keep those um, studio hours really sacred. Well, I, w I want to challenge you on that sacredness of your time because I heard a, a, a dirty little rumor, which is that you make an exception for Instagram and you post images throughout of your creative process throughout the day. And, uh, and of course I applaud that as a marketing guy. And, you know, who is it that came up with that notion? Gary Vaynerchuk says you need to be posting something on Instagram once an hour. And of course he's usually posting yeah. something on why you should get more advice from Gary Vaynerchuk, but why, <laughs> why Instagram? Why are you, what are you doing with it in particular? And why are you interrupting your creative process to post images throughout the day? Well, you know, what I do is hard on my body and I do need to stop and stretch and, and kind of uh, move my wrists around. So I find that that's a good time to just snap a picture of what I'm doing. So I like Instagram because it's visual and I don't feel the need to write many paragraphs. I usually put two short sentences, um, you know, making this today or covered in sawdust today. And the reason why I started posting process photos is because I noticed how much I love seeing process photos from other artists, from painters, other sculptors, just seeing the thing when it's kind of a mess and it's not done yet. And, um, you know, initially I thought, well, why would anyone want to see this? And then I realized how much I love seeing that from other people. So I put it out there and if you don't want to look and don't look and don't follow me. So I don't know. It just seems sort of a way also to document what I'm doing. I think of it as kind of a digital scrapbook. So it really doesn't take that much time out of what I'm doing. You, you can get pretty good at it. And I have, I know now how to edit my photos pretty quickly so that they look better. How effective uh, has it been for you and, and how have you built the audience for this? I think a lot of people will be curious uh, about the results. Well, let's see. Um, I guess I have uh, 
an, how do you judge success? I have, I think I have about 1500 followers on Instagram. Um, I think, a, well, sometimes I can't remember how something happened. I feel like maybe one or more exhibit possibilities happened through, um, somebody who found me on Instagram. I haven't, I haven't often posted a completed piece of work with a price on it and um, told people that it's available for sale on my website, but it's something that I, I want to try uh, in the near future. Uh, if it seems to it not lead to any sales or seems like people seem to be annoyed by it, I'll rethink that, but I'd like to explore that a little bit. Um, I do. I also love the button on Instagram where it directly forwards your post onto Facebook because I find that a number of people that I sort of have a computer relationship with, I guess, only use Facebook as opposed to Instagram. So it's nice that one post gets me to both of those forums. And I have definitely had some sales through people I've met on Facebook. Well, that's pretty glowing. Uh, well, let me ask you something else um, about in this sort of category, because it's technology, logistics, and finance. And so we've kind of gone in that order. Let me ask you a finance question. You do a monthly P&L also. So there's a lot going on with you, by the way. I mean, you, you know, like I, I built my own website and I make time throughout the day for Instagram and I do a monthly P&L. For those who don't know what a P&L is, it's a profit and loss report. Um, this is something that you know, if you're keeping up with your bookkeeping and QuickBooks or your bookkeeper is, you can easily export this report. It's a one-page report usually and so on. But uh, but most artists I've met have no idea what their uh, P&L would say and how much money is, uh, you know, how much the company, the entity has actually earned. They, they sort of just know how, what they're, whether they made their rent. So how have you changed the way you manage your business finances over the past couple of years while you've been in the accelerator program with CHF and why are you running this monthly PL? <laughs> Woo, yeah. Um, it all changed since I was um, have been working with Clark Hewling. Uh, so what I did in the past was, you know, I had registered my art business as a sole proprietorship and I had a manila envelope and I would shove all my receipts for business purchases for a year in this envelope and I would not open it up until March when I was doing my taxes. And I'd pull out this vomiting envelope with tons of scraps of papers, be really cranky, enter them all into my spreadsheet. And only then would I have any idea how much money I spent. Usually I had an idea of how much money I had earned through sales and teaching. But boy, since I started doing profit and loss statement, it really makes me think twice about what I spend money on. I, it's, I mean, first of all, I'm so embarrassed that I didn't do that in the past. The, I mean, the envelope is a, you know, kind of blotch on my financial past. But it, it has really changed my behavior, knowing how much I spent last month or how much I earned after a, an exhibit. I think before I would see something, you know, wood or some art material that had potential or I, I thought I might use it in I'd say, oh, well, this is on sale. I'm just going to buy it. Now I really only buy exactly what I need. And that I don't know why that um, simple monthly statement has really made that change for me, but it did. And I've saved a ton of money. I, I think knowing what you're doing is a very powerful thing. 
Well, you won't find me uh, disagreeing with that. I um, <laughs> I used to do my own books for the longest time, much for the reason uh, that we talked about with branding, that I wanted to make sure it was done right. Um, and also because I wasn't sure a bookkeeper would do it the way I want. Um, and there are creative choices within how you track books based on um, what you want your tax profile to be and how you... Um, how you want to structure your business and so on. So anyway, I, I did it for a long time and then it got too much. Um, it's taken too much of my time. So I have a bookkeeper and I asked him for a P&L the other day. I need a P&L. I need this current, you know, hit print. Give me a P&L. Um, so I think it's uh, a good thing for um, any of the artists listening. If you haven't looked at your profit and loss report uh, to be able, one, to be able to read one, there's, there's really two financial statements, both of which are like one page that, um, we should be able to read for our business. One is a P&L and the other is a balance sheet. And if we can read those two things and understand them, they're fairly simple. Um, they'll give us a, a clear financial picture, um, if we're doing sound bookkeeping in the first place, uh, of, you know, the profitability of our company. So yeah, I applaud you for wanting to know what's going on because only when you know, um, can you, uh, improve it. So, um, yeah. I want to ask you just a couple of questions. One, uh, before we, we wind down with a couple of fun things, one question is about, um, a recent grant, um, that you received and the others about accelerator. So you received a professional development grant from the Idaho commission on the arts. And I wonder if you could tell us about that application process and whether or not your work with CHF uh, in developing an artist statement and a business plan and, and some of the other assets that you sort of learn how to do when you're, uh, you're working with CHF. Did, did those things help with the application? Oh, they helped so much. Um, we did an awful lot of writing our, the first year of the CHF fellowship. And of course I saved all those documents and have them, you know, organized in folders and so when I wrote for this grant, it, it was very specific. I wanted um, funds to attend a workshop to learn a new skill that made sense for furthering my overall art practice. I, I think I maybe thought it was going to take a couple weeks to, you know, write a good application. And I had so much written and edited content in my, on my computer that I was able to put together a really strong application very, very quickly. I feel like it took me an afternoon when I thought it was going to take an awful long time. And I submitted it for a pre-submission review, which they kindly do at the Idaho Commission on the Arts. Um, I submitted it over a month before the due date. And I was the kind of person in college who was like all-nighters before every exam. You know, I was a last-minute person. So I finished this a month before it was due. I got feedback the very next day from someone at the arts commission who said, you know, this looks great. You're good. And so I actually submitted this almost a month before it was due. And then, um, was really happy to find that I was funded, but yeah, I, I had most of the thinking and writing already done. And that, that stuff is like gold because it's hard work when you do it at the beginning, it's much easier to update something than to start from scratch. Well, it's certainly good to hear. Um, I think, you know, you've got, you've got so many parts of this business uh, put together, a brand story that you can utilize, um, a sales strategy for going after your audience and multiplying your income streams, um, 
as well as, you know, sort of the emotional backing of, hey, I'm not going to let no uh, keep me down. You've got a team, a network, a tribe of people that you're working <laughs> with, uh, and have even founded a, a local chapter of the Artist Federation, a group that can help sort of, you know, you're stronger in a bundle than, than by yourself. So you've got that community thing. Um, you're intentionally doing something about you're learning as an artist. You're not sort of sitting and, and hoping that eventually it all comes clear, but you're going after the pieces that you see missing from your business that you need. You built your own website, um, so you focused on the visual and technical side of your branding as well. You keep a, a strict schedule for creative work so that you're you're in the studio. The myth that you can't run a business and also commit to the studio, you've kind of exploded that. Um, but you still, you know, cheat for Instagram because Instagram's working for you. You're actually getting, uh, exhibits and clients and, and, uh, by telling your story, telling, you know, repeatedly through pictures and Instagram and, uh, you, yet you keep an eye on the profitability of your business. You, you watch, um, your profitability. And I happen to know that you track your inventory and you also, um, are, are going after grants and other opportunities using sort of a bank of, um, of writing that you've put together, some boilerplate that you've worked on that just, like you say, you can reach in and grab the pieces. So that's a description of a highly effective business with a high probability of being profitable, a really good bet for an investor, for instance. And you're close to, to kind of sum that up, you're close to completing the second year with us at the Clark Healings Fund as an executive fellow in the accelerator program. So I wonder... Now that you're carved out of wood after nearly two years in the program and uh, you have, you know, you've, you've come this far, what are your greatest successes so far in the program? And, and I'm also curious um, what the most noticeable impact has been on your business. Oh, boy. It's, you know, it's really hard to pick one thing because I made so many changes. Um you know, I, I don't, this is a little intangible, but I have to say that one of the biggest things that came out of my time with CHF is kind of a big rewiring in my brain. Well, the two of them. One is I went in thinking that marketing was just like a dirty word, kind of like a, that it meant manipulating people into buying something that they didn't want. And now I really understand that marketing is just getting whatever it is that you make or do out into the world. And then the people who are exposed to that will make of that what they will. But you can make the most incredible art or whatever it is that you make. And if nobody sees it, then nobody can buy it. So to me, just reframing in my brain what marketing meant has been enormous because now I just think of it as sharing and who doesn't like, I don't know, something free shared with them. So I, I totally got rid of that icky feeling with respect to marketing. But then this is the one that's more intangible is um, I feel like I've gotten over the guilt of having a, kind of like a dream job, a romantic job, because I think, you know, I certainly, I love the idea of, you know, someone being a ballerina or a writer or an artist when I was a kid. And so I think part of me felt a little guilty that I have this amazing job. And so it's okay that I wasn't making very much money at all. Um, I feel like I've put the dream job in context. So 
first of all, there's the work of creative people around all of us every day. Even if we say, I don't like art at all. You know, you have music, you have the design of the dishes you use, your clothing, billboards. There's, there's just creative stuff everywhere. So art making does affect everybody. But, you know, I also see that being an artist, I really do have an economic impact on my community. I mean, um, I've had my art photographed by the same small business photographer for over 10 years. Uh, so I've been supporting his business forever and we have a great relationship. I buy lumber, I buy art supplies in my town. Um, I've rented various warehouse studio spaces. I've hired models for um, taking photos of my work on a human body. And uh, then, <laughs> you know, there's the, uh, chiropractor and physical therapist I've gone to because doing the kind of work work I do is hard on my body. So I don't know. I feel like just kind of putting putting what I do and what artists, creative people do in context has made me lose that guilt, made me realize, you know, I deserve to earn a living wage. There's a reason why creative things can be so expensive. It's not because artists are trying to steal your money. It takes a lot of time and many, many years to get to that end point of something that someone can buy. So losing, shaking off that guilt has been enormous for me because I love what I do and I feel like I was born to do it. And I don't feel guilty about that anymore. Thanks to my time uh, as a CHF fellow. I, I hear that a lot as a common takeaway um, that it isn't the physical realities that keep an artist from prospering. It isn't the, um, the tangible roadblocks, uh, even the word no. It isn't I'm making the wrong kind of art for this uh, time period in history or, or whatever else it is. It's not a visceral thing. But it's actually the stories we tell ourselves and the myths that we perpetuate that, that keep us, they're designed to keep us uh, small, uh, dependent, yeah. uh, to, to stymie our ability to thrive, which is one of the reasons in these art business conferences, um, the moment I sort of jump up there <laughs> on the stage and, and begin teaching a workshop, I, I go right to the myths, you know, like, all right, in order for us to, to have a conversation first, I got to lay out the things that people tend to believe and why those things keep you small and uh, the, um, or, or shall we say poor, and what the alternative <laughs> beliefs are. Um, so if you're committed to poverty, you're in the wrong place. But <laughs> if you're committed to your business, we're welcome. And, uh, so, oh, I'm so glad you're doing that. That's great. <laughs> well, we've got we've to gotta unwind some of this stuff because what you're talking about is you came in with this, this attitude, you know, it was like marketing's dirty. It's going to, you know, pollute things. And you had to overcome it. And now look at you. You're interrupting your 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 business day um, to uh, do some market. <laughs> you built your own website. I mean, you can't, you can't be committed to that anymore. So, uh, and it's certainly working for you. So you're, um, to w kind of wind up with a couple of fun questions. 2018's been a big year, you know, for you with multiple exhibitions across the country. What are your professional plans in 2019? I want to um, learn or practice some, working with some new materials in my studio, I find that making the wood and metal sculptures that I make tend to take between maybe 50 and a hundred hours to make. And I end up with one finished piece that I can sell. I'm trying to figure out how to kind of increase my 
output. And some of it may involve, you know, maybe doing a very detailed carved piece, but then um, making a mold of it and then reproducing it in um, plaster or metal. Something that will allow me to sell my work, you know, sell a piece more than once and sell it at um, multiple price points. Because something that has that much time into it, um, you know, my pieces are pretty expensive. So um, I like the idea of sort of having more options for people. And I also, I love learning new things. So I've got a few new materials and techniques that I, I want to learn next year. Uh, and as far as business things, I, I really, I still have a lot more to go as far as sales go. I need to sort of put together a sales pipeline. I've had people say, I'm really interested in this piece. I was sorry to see that it sold. And I, you know, I have a little bit more time coming up next year, probably time to have a conversation with one of those people and say, you know, would you like me to make a commission piece similar or, or identical to the one that you expressed interest in? So I kind of, you guys have trained me how to think more like a salesperson, but I haven't, that's something I haven't really had the time to put into practice as much as I'd like to. So that's big on my list for 2019. Well, that's good to hear. You know, that that's the follow-up, right? Okay. So they basically already said yes to the sale. The hard work <laughs> is done. They're like, I would have bought that. And so now it's just a question of what can I put into your hands? I would have bought that Lamborghini that you just sold that guy driving away. If only you had another one. And the Lamborghini guy yep. is going, I think that can be arranged. <laughs> Shall we? You know, exactly. My name's Bill. Let's talk again, you know, really soon. So, yeah, I, I like what you're talking about. That's the CRM sort of customer relationship management sort of approach. One last question. Do you have a forecast for your art business in the longer term, say the next two years, five years, you know, 10 years? You know, I would love it if people were to think uh, art, science, who's an artist that does that? If, if my name would pop up in their heads right away. I think, you know, I'm known in a small circle for that kind of work, but you know, sometimes I'll hear of an exhibit in, you know, Philadelphia, and it's an art and science exhibit. And I think, what? Why am I not in that? And it's because they don't they don't know who I am. So um, my goal is to just have my work out there more and do speaking engagements and have people know that I'm out there. That would feel really great because I can just sort of share what I'm trying to communicate more widely. Um, and I would love to be able to uh, employ people. I've done it a little bit of sort of kind of one-off things, but I'd love to have an artist assistant, people to help me do prep work for part of what I'm doing. So, and that goes along with being an economic impactor in my community as an artist. Yeah, definitely. We have a lot of fellows uh, now that have, have gone that route and have uh, become employers and uh, it's, it's really uh, been an important part, not doing it for its own sake, but when it fits in strategically with with a business plan that they've highly developed, it, it's yeah. gone, you know, a long way to helping them achieve what they want to achieve. You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you tune in. For more information on Kristen's work, visit KristenLevere.com. That's Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N, Levere, L-E-V-I-E-R.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit ClarkHealingsFund.org. To sponsor our learning programs, 
With your impactful gift of any size, visit clarkhealingsfund.org slash donate. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Kristen. It's been really great having you. I had a great time. Thank you, Daniel.